Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of the Farm Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Moshe Maimon, and we'll be discussing the piyot of Rabbi Yudah Levi, the author of the Kuzari, called Mika Moicha Adin Chazacha, which is said by the Svardim on um, the week before uh, Purim, so Shabbos Parsha Zacha. So uh, thank you, Moshe, for joining me once again. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure to be with you and, and your many, many listeners. Always, always a pleasure. Okay, so let's talk about this piyot. Uh, some listeners may be, you know, hearing for this piyot first time. I have no idea what the piyot is. So um, I'm actually, let's let's mention the piyot a little bit, and then we'll go we'll talk about Yehuda Levi for a little. Okay, so this piyot, um, which uh, popularly known as the piyot of Mika Mocha, Mika Mocha, is, uh, it, is the, it's, it, it was so popular that in some Sephardic communities, especially, the, you know, the one that I come from, the Shabbos before Purim was not called Shabbos Zachar, it was called the Shabbos of Mikamocha, Shabbati Mikamocha, because it, it was it, it, for the for the people in Shul, this took on more of a meaning to them saying this piyat than, than even the laying of Parsha Zachar. So this is a it's a very widespread meaning in, in the Sephardi world. We'll talk about when they said it and whether you know may not have even started to say it on the Shabbos before Purim, but right now the association today is uh is this piyat is said on, on Shabbos Zachar by the Sephardim. Okay, so basically, right, well, we'll leave that just for now, just like you said, it's a piyat, it's, it's a piyat, you know, with like all the classics of, of a piyat. Um, okay, let's talk about Yehuda Levi a little bit. There's actually a uh, myth, a legend as well, that's associated with his history with this piyat, but we'll leave that for a minute. So first of all, just his basic background, um, who Rabbi Yehuda Levi was, when he lived, that kind of thing. Okay, so the, the, the thumb line sketch of Rabbi Levi is he was born in Spain when Spain was uh, was still known as Andalusia. It was it was under Muslim control and more importantly, Muslim Muslim culture. He was born, I believe, in uh, Toledo, Tudela. It was it may have been known at the time. And uh, I think the year was uh, about 1075. Thereabouts is uh, a contemporary of of we of the Rimagash, a student of the Rif. Many people think he himself is a student of the Rif. He may have been a Talmud of the Rimagash as well. He's a Talmud cover of his. There's 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 Geniza evidence that he was a uh, for for a time he served as the scribe for uh, for uh, the Rimagash. He was close to him and he, he composed some of his songs after the passing of the Rimagash. So there's definitely a connection there. He grew up in uh, like we said in Andalusia under the influence of Muslim culture, which included at the time. For the for the intelligentsia, people like Gerbuda Levy, it included a, a thorough background in philosophy, in, in medicine, and also a big emphasis on linguistics, on poetry, and on grammar, and and uh, and and an emphasis on on the Bible as well, because that was where the Jewish poets drew their inspiration from. Uh, after uh, leaving, uh, he left. About the they, they, we know we we have him placed in Egypt in the year eleven forty on his way to Eretz Yisrael. Did he get there? Did he not get there as a matter of dispute? A year later, we know that he was no longer alive. There is a legend that he made it to Eretz Yisrael and he was trampled by uh, an Arab nobleman uh, on his horse, right? When he got there, most likely that's a romanticized account with little basis in, in history, but it is it is pretty much established that he was dead about a year after he had left Eretz Yisrael. Right, and obviously he's famously known for authoring the Sefer Kuzari, and also for many, many, many piyutim, poems, and and the like. Um, so, 
this is probably, you know, interesting. I would say this is the most famous one, but I don't know about Ashkenazim. This may not be. They may be more familiar with this kinnis. may not be so familiar with with this one. So, yeah. I would, uh, I'm going to tease a publication of mine that's about to come out. There's an article that uh, it's it, it just about ready to go to print, which is from uh, the Pirish on Chumash. It's a fragment from the Pirish on Chumash of Reb David Hanogid, the last of the line of uh, the Negidim, uh, sixth generation descendant of the Rambam. And this Pirish of his is a leaklet from, pre- from earlier sources. And very intriguingly, he brings a piece there from Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, which is similar to something in the Kuzri, but much more expanded upon. And, and there are some differences in there, which, which is, uh, it's very tempting to think that Rabbi David Anugget actually had a, 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 a Pirish on Chumash from Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, which is completely unknown until now. You know, again, like he wrote the Kuzri, which is very famous for, and, and a lot of uh, uh, songs, both uh, Shirei Kaida, Shirei Choyl, but a Pirish on Chumash we did not know about. So this is a really, this should be a very, very, uh, very interesting re- uh, revelation. Okay, right. So like I said, so this Piyot, actually, let's leave the Piyot. I keep going back. But let's let's first talk about the, the interesting part of the Piyot, even though it's part of the Piyot, it's, it's part of the historical background. So I think we should discuss it now. There is a famous tradition, myth, probably I could call it that, but it's not, I guess it's not for sure a myth, that uh, the Benezra, the famous Rebbe Benezra, was Rebbe Yudha Levi's son-in-law. And this story has its roots in this Piyot. So uh, maybe you want to relate this story and how it's connected to this Piyot that we're discussing. Uh, likely this, um, you know, this, there was there was likely a separate tradition or myth that that's, that had uh, Rebbe Yudha Levi, uh, being the father-in-law of Ibn Ezra, um, likely this this comes about. You know, this probably started in a, in a world where they did not know a lot of the Chachme Andalus, uh, aside from the very famous ones like Rabbi Udalevi and Ibn Ezra, who were definitely contemporaries. They definitely crossed paths a lot. Ibn Ezra does quote Rabbi Udalevi variably throughout his peers, so there's a connection there. Um, there is no, you know, there's no mention of of any family relation, but he is mentioned there. They were friends. They definitely had a lot of contact. They come from the same place. They live at the same time. Uh, they may have even gone, you know, they may have even showed up at the port in, in Cairo at the same time, according to some Geniza evidence. But uh, there is no evidence of any relation, of course. But there, that is, that was, there was such a legend that they were related by marriage. And likely that legend was used, was harnessed to explain a, a very obvious discrepancy in this, in this piet, which we will get to soon, or we can get to it now. Yeah, we probably. I mean, I, I'm just, I, we should dive into it, but let, let's just just talk about this part of the piyut. Then we'll discuss the overall piyut, the structure, how you know standard goes in all phase, what the piyut talks about. I just want to discuss this one part of the piyut. It's a, specifically about the ice race when it, you know the letter race. Okay, so I guess the well, a little bit, the, a little bit of the structure is necessary to understand the, this legend. Um, the piyut is com- comprised of eighty-five stanzas, and uh, the, the eighty-five stanzas are arranged alphabetically. In four separate arrangements. The first one is straight through Aleph Bays. Then there's one that spells out Ani Yehuda Levi Chazak, I believe, or you know, four letters there. And again, Aleph Bays, and then a shorter one, Ani Yehuda, or thereabouts. So in uh, one of these, in the first, I believe it's the first one, which is a straight Aleph Bays, the 22 letters of Aleph Bays, there are two ratios there. There may be the third one. There are two ratios there. And that's uh, very interesting. Uh, this, so this this probably gave rise to the following legend, which is first, uh, you know, first written down in the in the Shalshelas Akabala, the much maligned Shalshelas Akabala, 
But he says that uh, Rabbi Yudha Levi was in the middle of composing his Mika when he got stuck on the letter Resh. And he tried and he tried and he tried, but he could not come up with a solution. And his wife was waiting to serve him his supper. And uh, she finally sends to the base Medrash for him. Meanwhile, in this base Medrash, uh, the Ibn Ezra showed up incognito. But he showed up there and he got close to Rudal Levi, never revealing who he was, pretending to be an ignoramus. And uh, when Rudal Levi finally leaves, he leaves his work table and he goes home to enjoy his dinner. So Ibn Ezra goes to look what he was doing and he sees this, uh, this, uh, this, this poem under construction and he says, oh, what's the big deal? He couldn't come up with a race and he writes one himself. Meanwhile, Rudal Levi comes back. He is already on his way back. He had an inspiration for another race. So he put his in there, and uh, when he discovered the the other one, he, he figured out it must be the work of this uh, itinerant student of his, and uh, and that's how his identity as a Talmud Hassan was revealed. And uh, it, it's a little bit more romanticized in the Shashal. It's like Kabbalah with the promise of who he would marry off his daughter to. But the story goes that uh, this is uh, this was the impetus for him to give his daughter's hand in marriage to the Ibn Ezra. And that's why we have the two races here. Yeah, I was gonna add. So the story goes he, like he, his wife was was you know chaperoning him to marry off the daughter. wasn't married, so he swore. He made it you know something that doesn't make any sense. Right. He would have done. He swore. He said he's gonna marry it off to the first person that comes with an Ezra. And like you said, he made believe he was an ignoramus, and it was terrible. There was a whole long long story, and there's a whole Shashalas Kabbalah. But the Shashalas Kabbalah says this: who, like you mentioned, the much aligned the Chida is you know notorious for going after him. Um, and uh, but the, but the Sederis does quote him, which the Chida you know has a cash and the Sederis. Um, something else about something else about this, I think, is worth worth mentioning here. Uh, the Barbanel does quote this legend as well. So the Barbanel, um, but again, so I haven't mentioned this yet. But there's a new, brand new, beautiful edition of Mikamoicha with with the Pirish and, and etc. And there's a bunch of Nisbachim in the back, you know, appendices in the back. And the first one talks about the story at length and goes through the history of this. And really, it's the you know a very very good article, well worth reading. But I, I do think it's worth pointing out something else about this legend is the Shuvas. Chavis Yair, everyone knows the uh, the Chavis Yair, um, uh, Rabbi Yorchai and Bachrach, right? So he he in Simon Reish Lamaches, the last section, the last chuva in the Sefer, he brings this down. He's talking about a piyutim and how you could say piyutim and davening. He's talking about it and he brings down this story, and he says So he brings down that in Shema Yischav Beis, he brings down Rabbi Levi, and he doesn't mention that he's his father-in-law, and he says this is this is Blamish Tzarechin. This makes no sense. He says, Menuchasik covered. So he says, oh, the Chavis answers this, but he probably married his daughter after he died. So he wants to answer up the Shashala Sakabala. Um, but there's, there's more here. You know, you can read more in the, in the uh, Chavis Yar. I saw that, uh, and this is, there's a lot of this, this is all quoted in this Nisbach here. And Romer right. Mazuz, in his uh, Sansa Nayor, he has a Pirish on this, on, um, he has a Pirish on the Mikamaycha. He tries, he answers, he tries to answer this. That he says that they didn't know the Rishonim didn't call by name, you know, they didn't necessarily, necessarily a cash on on him. But uh, the the with the fellow, I don't know who he is, who wrote, who put out this nisbach, he doesn't like, you know, he has Kasha's mother Rishonim on her So this is a whole discussion. Obviously, won't get into that. I don't know if you wanted to mention this, but he does mention here in this new edition that he actually found in the Kisvayad. This is fascinating. Six different rishes. and not only that, in some Kisvayad, it's missing altogether. So he hypothesizes that perhaps. There was no race for whatever reason. We didn't have it, whether Buddha Levi didn't write it or we don't have it. So people just came and filled it in, and suddenly this legend grew up from this. But, anyways, that's the historical right. legend about the race. And uh, okay, so let's get to the Piet. I would just add one more thing that 
um, studying this piyat over Shabbos, it occurred to me that the hardest stanza in the entire piyat, and uh, for the most part, it's it's pretty straightforward. All you need is a good concordancia because there's so many biblical references, obscure ones too. But if if you know the, the meaning of these biblical terms, it's it's actually pretty straightforward. It's not like a kaliri where you know, where there's all kinds of new words and new formations, and new conjugations that we never knew. So it's it's pretty much self understood. But uh, this one stanza, which is attributed, you know, which which is considered the authentic reish by Rabbi Yudah Levi, is almost incomprehensible, and which which may be why you know, the you know the, the edition that you're talking about from uh, Rabbi Yisrael Eliyahu that came out a year ago. So he's he, it, it's his uh, theory that maybe there, there was no original race and that's why they were added in, which is a little bit strange. Why would there be no race? You know, is that just oversight? I think it's it's, it's more likely, in my mind, that this complicated race was just so it was just too hard for people, and uh, so it just it, out of necessity, some later uh, later Pythonim tried to you know put an easier one in there for people. That's that's uh, my you know I don't I don't know that for a fact, but uh, that's that would I think that would be a more workable theory. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Piat. Just to tease, the Piat is, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the 85 stanzas, but the Piat is basically, I, I think of looking at it as, you know, just what I thought of looking at it, not an expert in Piat. It seems like uh, almost an, like the Avoida on your Kippur, if you're familiar, it's like a, P, a retelling of what happened in a Piat. This is the retelling of the Purim story. The first three, uh, you, know, proc, you know, the first three parts talk about um, the the uh, story, and the last one is about the mistress of Purim. So, but first of all, something we should discuss is why is it called Mikamaycha Adin Chazdecha? Okay, very good. So that uh, Mikamaycha is actually a name of a type of piyut. And uh, a long time ago, when piyutim were popular and and, uh, and well uh, recognized, there were different kinds of uh, piyutim for different parts of davening, and mostly in the Birchas Kriya Shema, either before Shema and some after Shema. And the Mikamaycha kind of piyutim were said specifically to be said after the Mikamaycha right before Gaal Yisrael. And there was a lot of such piyutim. This was a very common practice in, in, uh, in the ancient world. In times of the Kadmonim, the Rimagash was asked about it, and he said, it's okay. When the Rambam, his, you know, a student of, uh, of, uh, you know, of the Rimagash school, when he was asked about it, he was very, very opposed to it. He said there should be no interruptions during Berchus uh, but the Rimagash himself says that this is widespread. He said it's ubiquitous. Everywhere in the world that he knows of, uh, piyutim are set on the special Shabbos in the special days as well in the, you know, in, during the Birchus Kriyashma. In fact, we have in, in the Sefer Hamaspik, it says that in, uh, you know, in Fostat, where the Rambam lived, there were two different synagogues. There were more, but two main synagogues. And one of them was the Palestinian synagogue, which, which finished the Torah once every three years. And they would say piyutim during, uh, you know, during Kriyashma. And the Rambam was so opposed to it. He would uh, avoid praying there. That's what, that's what they're getting. He said he couldn't stop it. He wasn't powerful enough to stop the minig, but he was very opposed to it and he wouldn't pray there. And uh, and that's that's in keeping with the Rambam's tshuva where he's uh, opposed to it. Now, why was he so opposed to it? Did he feel that it's a halachic hefsik against the Rimagash's ruling, and which is also the Rift's ruling? Perhaps, but it's also likely that it has to do with uh, the reason given by the tour that it, it just it, it ruined uh, the decorum of uh, of the shul. You know, these constant interruptions, it's like all the Misha Berachs during Kriya Torah of today, for example. You know, and these things, you know, people talk, there's all these interruptions, it, it ruins the, the mood. And that was a big concern of the Rambam, we know, that we know that he did away with Chazar Sashatz uh, by Musaf for that reason. So it, it's possible that that was another factor in his uh, in his opposition. But uh, 
you know, that's it, it, ultimately in the Sephardic world, the Rambam's opposition is what is what held the day. And and, and the Machaber in Shulchan Aruch writes that we should not, uh, you know, we should not be mafsik. And it's, it's far today are not mafsik. But when Rabbi Yudha Levi wrote his piyot, uh, it was, still was pretty widespread to say piyutim during the Birchas Kriyashma. And one genre of those piyutim was Mikamaycha. Now, Rabbi Yudha Levi himself wrote more than one Mikamaycha. I think he wrote six or 12, you know, there's a whole list of them, which have fallen out of use a long, long time ago. This Mikamaycha survived, and that's why it has its second name. It's, it's Mikamaycha Adon Chazdecha, because that's the, after the opening stanzas, Adon Chazdecha. After, you know, they say the Pesach of Mikamaycha, and then the actual, you know, the Aleph of the beginning of the Piyot is Adon Chazdecha. So that's that's why it has its second name. This one survived because of its great popularity. Um, apparently, it was moved to the Mikamaycha of Nishmas. You know, Hafsakas during Pesukah de Zirma were still much more acceptable after they stopped being Mavsik in the Birchas Kriyashma. But then they moved it to, to the Nishmas, to the Pazi of Mikamai Chavir. The Chida, when he talks about this minig, he was only aware of the Nishmas minig. He doesn't know about the original minig, say, during Birchas Kriyashma. So, and, and he says that even though there's many, many communities that still say it during Nishmas, that's also a problem because according to Kabbalah, there should be no interruptions even in the Psuki de Zimra. And therefore, there was a movement to move it out of the Pesukah to say it after davening, totally disassociated from any Mikamaychas. And uh, the, just the name is what reminds people that originally it was part of Mikamaycha. So you, I think your family, right, is Turkish, and I don't know if you know about other Sephardim. So when do you actually say it? And what about others, you know, about Syrian and Moroccan? When do they actually say the piyot? I think most of the mainstream Sephardi shuls today will say it after... Uh, after Shachar's, before Kriya Torah, but uh, there are some, you know, I read about there are pockets of, of people, of, of of holdovers that still say it during Nishmas. I don't know of anyone that says it uh, during Kriya Shema. I would, I, would, I would think that's probably obsolete, the original Minig. Right, I saw in this, so in this new edition that you mentioned, um, it does also mention something that people also, there was said on Purim at some point, you know I've ever heard of such a Minig or only on the Shabbos before Purim. Right, so I, I never heard of that minig either until I read the, this this young man's research. But apparently, you know, if if it, if it was, you know, I always thought like the Chida did that it was originally invented for Nishmas, which obviously you don't have on Purim. So that's why you know I had assumed it was for Shabbos before Purim. But he says that he, you know, a lot of the evidence this because of its popularity, there were so many, you know, fragments in Magniza and other libraries and in old Sidurim that have this this uh, and and the earliest the earliest. Uh, Evidence for this piyot indicates that it was said on Purim, you know, in the Birchas Kriyashma of Purim. And probably that, uh, you know, that imposed the extra hardship on people because of the, all the other things they were doing on that day. But they did this. This is a, this is a, they were so beloved that they, that they did, you know, they made time for this. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the piyot. You know, we mentioned it's such a beloved piyot and it's, you know, so popular. It's maybe interesting people listening, popular piyot. Everyone's like yoisters now. They go running out of shul. Well, nobody, or shuls don't say it. They're going out of shul. They don't say it anymore. You know, piyotim. So obviously there's something different about this piyot, um, besides the fact that Rita Levy wrote it. And uh, so, like I mentioned, it's somewhat like, I'm just giving an example. People understand, like that void. You know, it's giving you the story of the Purim story in a you know, piyot forms. I think that probably is what makes it interesting. So maybe talk a little bit about the actual piyot, like what it discusses. Okay, so I, I, one of the things which always struck me, and I'm not a piyot expert at all, but what always struck me is that the sheer genius of this piyot is readily apparent to anyone just looking at it, even for a moment. And you know, I was I was, I was, was introducing this piyot to my students a few weeks ago, 
And I, and I told him, imagine Hashem in Shemayim, he gathered all the Neshamas of all the poets and all the, you know, the great uh, Paitanim who wrote all the Piyutim for Hashidurim throughout the generations. And he posed them with the following challenge. He said, I want you to say over the firm story, but I want it to rhyme. You know, and now rhyme was very popular in the Arabic world where the Levi grew up. But, it, you know, in, in, the, in the Chumash, there's, there's a lot of Shiras which don't rhyme. And in the ancient world, Shira did not necessarily, you know, Popular shears did not rhyme. Why? You know, why didn't they think of it? I'm sure kids, you know, there were always nursery rhymes. But for some reason, you know, sophisticated prose did not have to rhyme necessarily. But in the Arabic world, it did. So let's say this is the challenge. Come up with a piet for Yom Kippur. For, I'm sorry, for, for him. And rhyme it. And it's got to be rhymed. It, there's got to be acrostics in there. So you, you don't have the freedom to choose your words. And I want every single stanza to end with a an exact, not a not a paraphrase, but an exact phrase from Chumash ending with the word loy, loy with loy to him. And uh, I think there's the, he, did, he did a count in this, this recent edition that you mentioned, and there's 1,200 there such instances in the Torah, and they want every single one to fit appropriately to the stanza and take a pasuk with loy and rhyme it and use and use as many biblical references as you can. Uh, and you know nobody was able to do this except for Abu Dalevi, the great genius. So when you look at this. It's astounding because it's the entire story told over beautifully and brilliantly. It's rhymed, it's witty, and there's just so many layers of meaning. The more you, you know, the more you look into it, and the more you check the references, the more beauty you see in it. So I, I think that's why it, it, that that's the cause of its immense popularity. Right now, we meant we can, I can mention this edition, the new edition. They just called it Mikamoycha Adan Chazaka. It's literally the very, very original name of the Sefer. He just literally called right. it that. But he has in the text mention four appendices. And uh, in the beginning, there's, there's an introduction. And then throughout it, he put in a lot of the sources. And there's also a, you know, a long commentary. I think he called from all the different ones that were around. Um, I don't know. I can't say offhand right now. I don't know if it's available in the stores locally, but, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I find the link, I'll put it in the show's notes, but I'm not sure. The other place that I can think of offhand is, um, besides writing, I guess it's Farty Sidurum, but in Sansa Leoyer from Amir Mazuz, which I know is around, I believe now, actually, um, which he has, it's his all, you know, all his different tyra on Purim and Esther, etc. He does have in the beginning. He has um, this with his own commentary. I think this was like the first safer he wrote when he was still in the Jerba. He has a yeah. facsimile in the back. Not only the new edition, he also gives you his original facsimile of this. So he has also, you know, a, a commentary on it. Another uh, there's another edition which is in a, a popular safer, the Chazon Ovadia from uh, Rabbi Vadia Yosef. His safer on Purim also has uh, as the has the Mika Meicha with his own. Uh, Commentary mostly pointing out the, what their, the biblical references are, but it's it's also a nice, easy to use peerish. Right. Okay. So now, what about some? Do you have any? I don't know if you have. You, you spoke about the overall the structure and what it talks about. Do you have any examples that you wanted to highlight from the piet that you could point out to listeners, especially those of us that are not familiar with the piet? Let's. Uh, I, I think we should. Uh, we've teased the race long enough. I think we should. Let's say some of those stanzas. Uh, you know that, that lead into that race. Uh, Situation with the double race, you know, two out of six, but the two, the two common ones, and most uh, Sephardi Shadurim do reprint the two races, uh, you know. So let's see. Let's, I think let's look at that in the uh, in Rabbi Mazuz's edition. Uh, that's it's on page sixty-six, Tamak Vav. Um, so it starts with Kuf Keshev Rav Koshav Tzeror Hamar. Tzeror Hamar is a is a again. So that's a that's a Gemara reference. Rabbi lady pulls on Gemara. The Gemara says that is a hint to Mordechai. Keshev Rav Koshav Tzorahamar. So Mordechai listened very carefully. From the, 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 the king's 
servants who were there for to guard. And hear them thinking or planning and plotting about the king, saying, "Hava nischak malay." So the "Hava nischak malay" is a, from Paray's words. There's a there's the, the you know the ending, the biblical ending. And then okay, so then here's the next verse. And this this race is is pretty straightforward. This is the one they say is Ibn Ezra's race. One of them suggested, "Let me watch both, both, uh, both, uh, both, you know, both terms." Because the Gemara, this is another reference to Gemara where, where each one they didn't really overlap. But in order for for one of them to be able to, to carry out the plot, the 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 other is going to have to watch both uh, both of those periods. So you're going to watch double. And the other was going to place in the pitcher of water some some light. That's what he was going to put there, some uh, poison. And uh, the next race, this is the I, I believe the hardest stanza in the in the piet. Esther told the king these uh, very important words. In the name of Mordechai, and he wrote it down. They checked and they found it before a young deer, that he was going to, uh, they were going to give him the growth of the mountain. Which is just, it's just so ambiguous what this means here. There's actually uh, an old, the oldest commentary on this stanza belongs to the, the Tzor Hamor, no less, from Saba. He says that he believes that there, and we have not found a midrashic source for this. It doesn't rule out that there was one, but Ram Saba says he believes that the way they tested the, the water was by giving it to one of the, you know, to an animal in the king's zoo there, some a young deer, and, and the deer died. So they, they realized that this was not what it, an innocent herb, but rather some poison that grows on the mountain. That's his shot. There's others. But it just it's just very, very, very ambiguous. And that's I, I think the most ambiguous. Uh the result is a shin, shneim nitlu ala eights, the two sarisim were hanged. Shama Mordechai Lishonam Behiva Eitz. Mordechai was able to understand what they were saying. Nashkela Melech Samham Mavet Roetz, let us feed the king the poison, debilitating poison. Ulay if Maybe he will take it and we will overcome him. This salvation was what is stayed hidden away for for a further for a future generation. It was written in the king's sefer that the person who did this deserves to be paid. Because and the pasuk a person deserves to pay for his good deeds. That's a, a good sampling, I think. What do you think? Yeah, that's a good sampling. And then just just uh, to point out the last one. So then this is the first three like stanza proc, whatever you want to call them, go through the story. The last one is interesting because it's about the mitzvahs. It's, it talks about you know Sorry, it talks about the the mitzvahs of Purim that we have on Purim. I don't know if you wanted to mention some of those, but uh, it's it's short. I don't have to go through all of it. It's a little. It's not so long, and that talks about the various mitzvahs that we have on Purim. I will. Yeah, let me get to that in one minute. There's one here that uh, this to me is interesting. Because um, shortly thereafter, I'll, I'll get to the, that one in a minute. But um, there's one here, which I think, a few stanzas later, which I think I found a hint for it in the Ramban. In the part of Shalak. I, I just found this today, and I, I think it shows that the Ramban, uh, which is likely that he did, but I think he was influenced by uh, what he heard in the shul. 
which they probably did the Mikamok in his jewels, you know, like they did throughout the at the time the Spanish in, in Muslim world. So let's look at the the next uh, the next uh, right. So in, in the second uh, set, which spelled it Ani Yehuda Levi Akaton Berebi Shmuel Halevi. So the Yud here says, uh, "We'll go to Nun." Nimna Mordechai Miskod LaRasha. Mordechai would not bow down to the wicked one. Who is this wicked one? Nin Amalek Asher Mibeten Pasha. He is a descendant of Amalek, who was evil right from the start. Bezeh Hosif Alchatato Pesha. This uh, descendant of his added to his. Added to his sinful nature, lo Hashem Hashem would not forgive him. Um, I think the lo Hashem is going back on Amalek, like it says, Hashem Amalek Amalek Hashem has a Melchama forever. Hashem The next stanza, Everybody else would be bowed down. Mordechai would keep on going without bowing. So Haman riv al amdal That made Haman want to. Attack the entire downtrodden nation, and then he quotes a puzzle Mishli, Aber al Riv He was starting up and starting in anger and a fight for no reason, a fight that was not his. Now, this uh, just hit me today looking at the Ramban right at the end of the Parshish He says, Why is it that Amalek uh, is, is merits this terrible uh, you know, this sentence that they're, they're, they're forever, they've got to be eradicated forever and ever? So, the first answer he says. Is because everybody else, this is the famous answer, everybody else sees Shamuwal and Yergozun, you know, all the other nations were fearful and frightened after Kriyas Yamsuf. But Amalek didn't care. He didn't care. And that's why it says, Loya Rea Lokim, he didn't have any fear of Hashem. Then he adds the last sentence over here, the Oin Kihu Nin Esav. He is a descendant of Esav. Now, the word Nin here is unusual because the biblical Nin means any descendant. And uh, and Amalek is a grandson of Esau, which is which would more typically be called a nechet. Yeah, but he says nin kihu nin Esau v'karev lanu, and he's related to us. Over misaber al riv and he quotes that same pasuk in Mishlei. So I think the, the, first of all, the use of the use of nin, which was used by uh, by Rabbi Yudah Levi, say nin Amalek, Hashem Bet and Pasha, and also the reference uh, to over misaber al riv leiloi. I think that's a I think that's a giveaway that uh, of, of the pia he heard in the shul that morning. Okay, so now let me get on to uh, right at the end. You said about the, there is an actually an interesting yeshiva shechivish here where he starts talking about the mitzvayim, and this is the, the last. So he starts again on Yehuda, and the Aleph says, "Ichlu reim shesu Friends, brothers, eat, eat and drink and be merry. and watch the days of Purim always in happiness. And now we want to talk about matanas zichru. But always remember the paupers, the poor people, while you're rejoicing. A pasuk in Nehemiah, which is talking about the, actually about Rosh Hashanah at the time, but it says Shilchu Manais send gifts to those who don't have it. So you see that uh, he talks, he gets here, and then he also throws in Mishlech is using a pasuk which says give money to people who don't have. And uh, Rabbi Mazuz points out, and I think Rabbi Vadi also does that. Uh, very interestingly, there's a there's a Truma Sadesh, you know, the Achreinim always. Claire, why? What is the reason for the mitzvah of Mishleach Maris? And they find out, I mean, is it just to be marbereus, to make more friendship, more happiness? It's part of the joy of Yom Tov, that we rejoice with our friends. And the Truma Sadeshin puts forth that he thinks that Mishleach Maris is to make sure that even people who may not be poor, per se, not, they don't get matanis lovyainim, but they may not also have enough to have a good, joyful Purim Suda. 
So that's why by making sure that there's Mashallah Manas, everybody's giving presents. This way we make know that everybody's taken care of. And it seems that Rabbi Huda already, you know, they're supporting the Rishinim for this position. Uh, because it says Shilchumanis, he uses the Pasik to say give gifts to those who don't have. So apparently Rabbi Huda was also understanding that the purpose of Mashallah Manas is, is to make sure that everybody has. Not, not sure if the shalachmanas today, some of the shalachmanas that we give out will qualify as that when we give like these little bottle of schnapps or some, some <laughs> little small fancy cake or something. I don't know if it'll, but yeah, but it's very, very interesting that, that he actually, you know, like you said, you can point it out from there. And also fascinating Ramban that you pointed out. And so, so we can see, I was going to ask you, we can see that, that there were Rishainim and I'm, maybe there are, I'm sure there were Akhrenim as well. There were Mushba, you know, they had Ashba from this and they were obviously learning and engaging with this Piet. It's true. And, and, and not only that, this piet spawned a whole genre of melitza. And you'll find it in Sephardish's forum. They will, you'll see that they will use melitzas, which are taken from this, this, this poem. You know, they'll, they'll use rhymes and, and, and melitza cheddar that, that I recognize as coming straight from this poem because it was so, so widespread. And, um, and- I, well, I'll mention one more thing. You know, I... If you mine this poem and you check the biblical references, you can actually, you know, you can see how he learned certain psukim. And uh, one example, which I point out in the notes on Rabbi Ramban Rambam, um, it's almost at the end of the, you know, the point of this, like we said, I'll, I'll interrupt myself. The point of this poem was, like we said, it was inserted in by the Mika Mocha, and it, and it connected the theme of the day with the theme of the Berichas Kriyishma, which is, which is Mitzrayim. It is Mitzrayim. So at the end of the poem, the last set of stanzas here, Talk about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. He switches over to talk about the nays of Kriyas Yamsuk. And um, that, that's how it fits in. So he started with all the Nisim of Purim, and then he says Nisim happen all the time. And from this nays, we can appreciate the nays of Kriyas Yamsuk. And then, you know, in his discussion of Kriyas Yamsuk, I, and I, I, I think an interesting, uh, you know, an observation here. There's a, you know, uh, the Pasuk in the Shira is Tzalkai Feres Mayim Adirim. And there's a, you know, the Medrash, the Gemara says, the Tzalkai Feres Mayim Sank in the water. Who did the Adirim? The powerful Egyptians sank in the water. So Adirim means the Egyptians. But Hashdanim, like uh, Ezra and Rabbi they say that Adirim. Rashbam as well. Adirim means the Mayim Adirim. It's a, it's a, it's an adjective describing the waters as being very powerful. So I see here Yudha Levi in his poem. He choo- he chooses to go with the with the with the pshats, not with the medrash. In the right at the end, the Dalit, Daharais Abirim ba Adirim Naf. The powerful horsemen, the Adirim Naflu, they fell in the mighty waters. So you see clearly he's learning Adirim like uh, like uh, Ben Ezra and the uh, Okay, so so it's definitely a. Uh... A fascinating piece. So, you know, for those of us, I keep saying us, but I'm, you know, I'm assuming most listeners, Ashkenazi, maybe I shouldn't assume that, but that's what I'm assuming. So for those that aren't familiar with the piece, I mean, what can just someone pick up the piece and go through it, especially with these different new editions that we mentioned, you know, can there be what, I mean, I'm going to ask you this, but like, we already know the answer because I'm like, what can be gained from it? Why should someone pick it up and learn it? You kind of explained why, but maybe you have another, something more to add to that. I think everybody will, uh, you know, perm there's some time. You know, in the morning before, before uh, all the festivities start up or, you know, maybe at night, if somebody wants to get into the spirit of Purim, I think uh, this is a, this is just a, it's a fascinating uh, adventure. It's easy. It's, it's profound and it rhymes and it's, and it's beautiful and it's a genius. And it's not, you know, even though it's 85 stanzas, you can put a little, you know, put a, you, you can 
you can set it to your own little rhythm, your own little poem. It'll take you 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and you can really, really enjoy it. And then, if, you know, something catches you. Everybody's got their favorite Purim varts, something about Mordechai, something about Esther. You can always find stuff in there. I've done that for a long time. I've made a living doing that. People can always find things in there. So I, I think it's a, I think anybody who tries it will be happy they did it. Okay. Now, finally, I have to ask you, being that you're the, everyone knows, I mean, if not everyone knows, I'll, I'll mention it, that you're the editor of the Rambam and Rambam. You did the new edition of Reish Shmois and the Mamre on the Agarita. They're all available for purchase. We did a podcast about the Agarita, an episode way back. Is there any Purim Torah, anything specific from Rambam and Rambam, Purim related that you wanted to mention? You know, it's interesting. Uh, this, uh, you know, anyone who, you know, I, I tell it to anyone who will listen, of course. But there is one uh, at the end of Parshish B'Shalach uh, about, uh, I, I put it in the notes there. There's a, this has a, a nice little history. You know, there's a famous, uh, there's a famous statement from Rav Yosheber, where he says uh, in the name of his father, sometimes he said in the name of his grandfather, that uh, Amalek is the way he said it best, is Amalek is not a nation. Amalek is a notion. Amalek is not just a you know a tribe of Amalek genetically determined by the descendants of Esav, but rather it's people who subscribe to a certain ideology. It's the notion of fighting against Hashem and his chosen people. And any nation that decides to fight against Hashem and his chosen people, anyone who subscribes to that notion becomes Amalek. Uh, and uh, and accordingly, Timcha Zecher Amalek means not to wipe out a specific nation, but it means to wipe out this notion. And you've got to counter that notion. Um, and this is uh, this is pretty common. Rafael Shefter says it over him now. Yanak and others, Rafael uh, said, you know, it's, it's pretty common. On the other hand, in, in Brisk and you know, in Eretz Yisrael, they vigorously opposed to such a thing. Can't be. Rabbi never said it. There's a halacha. There's a din. I'm all like, you know, and they would. And they, they can't be. You know, they're very opposed. To it. But the truth of the matter is, even if Rabbi didn't say it, but we know the Chavetz Chaim said something similar. Rabbi Chanan Wasserman says that he heard from the mouth of the Chavetz Chaim. You know, that if we had the ability to go and fight the Bolsheviks, who were largely Jewish, we would have to fight them because they're Amalek. They espouse Amalek's ideology. We would have to fight them. So you have this you have this dichotomy here, you know. Um, and I found support, you know, Reb Nachem Eliezer Rabinovich in his Shuvas. He was asked about this by soldiers. Their mitzvah of, of, you know, when we fight the Arabs, so we fight the enemies of the Jewish nation. Should we have in mind to do the mitzvah of Mechias Amalek? Because they... They have the ideology of a Malik. And he was very strenuous. He said, if Rebchaim said it, it's a Divri Agada. Divri Agada, you can't mix into the Tchum of Halacha. There's you know, nothing doing. So I found, interestingly enough, in the Ibn Ezra and in Rebbe Ram also goes this way, that in the end of Mishalach, which is what we read on uh, Purim morning, the parsha of Amalek on Purim morning, it says, uh, he, he wiped, he, you know, he, he weakened them and defeated, conquered Amalek and his nation. So what does that mean? So Ibn Ezra says either it means Amalek is the name of the king and Amalek is the king of the nation of Amalek. Amalek v'as Amalek. Or he says, and this would seem to make more sense because we know the king of Amalek is Agag, not Amalek. Or he says Amalek is the nation of Amalek and Amalek are people who joined the fight. People, you know, he made a coalition to attack the Jewish nation. So according to this pshat, it's, it, it, uh, you know, Reb Chaim's or, or Chavetz Chaim's, it's not just Jewish anymore. This is the Ibn Ezra's pshat in the Pasuk. Amalek, it was the nation of Amalek who we have to vanquish, and there's also as Amalek, those who join the fight of Amalek. <laughs> so I like to say that over and over. 
Okay, very nice. And uh, like I said, I'll link. I'll try to find if I can. Fi- actually, I'll say it like this: if I find any links to either of the editions you mentioned, the Chazon or the San Salior of Ramazuz, or this other one, Mikamach, I'll try to link it. But if not, they could just the Sfardi Siddur should have it, right? Any Sfardi yeah. should should have it. You can just pick it up there. And now, one final thing is that you mentioned that you have a forthcoming article. Is there any anything new that you're working on that you want like that that you wanted to mention to the listeners? I, you know, in the course of my work on the Pirish. There were a lot of different fragments uh, of Rabbi Rambam and Rambam and others, and, and his father-in-law, Rabbi Chanal Ben Shmuel. There's a lot of Gneezer fragments that uh, deal with the uh, Parshanas. There's a lot of uh, leftover, you know, pieces on, you know, not on Chumash per se, but there's, there is a lot of Parshanut in Rabbi Rambam and Rambam's other writings, in his Chuvah, and Hamasbik, and, and, and the, the Hamasbik on Musar, and the Hamasbik on Tefillah. So I I have, a, you know, a, still a dream at this point, but I but it's, I've been doing some work on it. I want to collate all these different materials, the Geniza fragments from his circle down to Rabdavra Nugget, as well as a leakage from his own Pirushim. I want to put that all together as a supplementary volume, maybe. You know, other commentaries from Rambam and his circle. That's something I've, that would really interest All right, interesting. And thanks for uh, joining me to talk about the Piet. Wonderful, Nachi. Thank you very much again for having me. It's always, always a pleasure. And, uh, I hope I wish everybody a wonderful Purim, and I hope somebody takes me up on the suggestion. hope some of our Ashkenazi brethren uh, could appreciate the genius and beauty of Rabbi Dalevi's Mikamocha. Okay, Freilich and Purim.